it often seems to me as though I am looking at a, a landscape painting, but most of it's covered still. And there are certain areas, you know, a corner here and a tree there and a little rock over here. And I can kind of see those pieces, but the whole landscape, I still don't feel like I'm seeing. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Our work is often like threading a needle. There's this sweet spot of not too much and not too little, a kind of Goldilocks zone of exactly what's right, like the soft potency of a well-timed whisper. Our work is to coax order out of chaos in a way that brings forth more coherence and more vitality. The work is as much about being as it is about doing. It's about listening as much as it is acting, helping those parts that have been displaced or dispossessed to find a kind of agency and bring themselves forth. I found over time that the body responds best to a clear message, simple and direct. And for this to occur, it's essential to have a clear sense of where the problem is and what the problem is. Without these, our treatments easily can go wide of the mark. A clear diagnosis, or as I like to think of it these days, a viable working hypothesis, it gives us a powerful lever in helping our patients move into a state of fuller function and harmony. Of course, the past has its influence. We all traveled the road we have to arrive in this present moment. The conditions and circumstances of the present are the grindstone of where heaven and earth come together and allow us humans to use our jing and shun to work with the pressures, conflicts, and contradictions of opposites in such a way that we can generate a broader, wider, and more inclusive spectrum of being. Healing work is the work of bringing forth the agency in our patients that allows them more fully to live in the tensions and discomforts of joining heaven and earth. This idea of joining heaven and earth You know, it sounds lovely and harmonious, but the truth is it requires grit and persistence, along with a willingness to let ourselves be transformed into something that we might not even recognize. For healing to occur, there needs to be a certain amount of stability, enough of a sense of security in the ground upon which we stand that we can allow ourselves to become undone. You need the right amount of ing and way, the right mix of nutritive and protective, and more importantly, the vitality that arises from the interdependence between them. One of my teachers once told me that the way humans best grow and develop is to have both support and challenge. It's within that crucible that transformative change can occur. I noodle these days on these questions. Are we here to fix or facilitate? Are we here to remove a person's suffering or help them find within themselves the ability to bootstrap their own transformation? Are we here to comfort or to compel? Are we here to help them erase the effects of their history or use that experience painfully gained to create a more embodied future, to bring forth the conditions that allow them to live fully between the grindstones of heaven and earth? A few weeks ago, in episode 145, we talked with two researchers, Lisa Taylor Swanson and Lisa Conboy, about a research project 
that they were instrumental in designing and looking at how Chinese herbal medicine is used in response to the symptoms of COVID-19. This week, we speak with some of the practitioners who are doing the clinical arm of that research project, how they're doing the work, and what they're learning about our medicine, and also what they're learning about COVID-19 as they do this work. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up 
and available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. You know, sometimes it's daunting when you think about all the different methods that we have within Chinese medicine and all the different perspectives that can be brought to bear on any particular situation. It can be even more daunting to realize that we need not just one lineage, but many in times that are really difficult. Let's get into this conversation on how the folks over at the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine are using the various herbal medicine traditions in the treatment of symptoms of COVID-19. Hey friends, I have a follow-up conversation here. We spoke a few weeks ago with Lisa Conboy and Lisa Taylor Swanson about a study that they are instrumental in designing on studying the use of Chinese medicine, or Chinese herbal medicine in particular, in the treatment of COVID-19 type symptoms. And today I have Craig Mitchell, the president of the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine, Kathy Terramino, who, what do you do? I think you actually run this school, don't you? She's the dean. She's the dean. All right, that's what I said, she runs the school. And Dan Bensky, who is an author and publisher of a couple of herb books. Y'all might've read them at one point or another. And what we're here today to discuss is sort of the practical arm of this research study, how the research is being carried out. And then because we're all practitioners, we're, I know for myself and I suspect for you listeners, we're really curious to know what these practitioners are seeing in terms of symptoms, how they're responding to herbs. Of course, this is all done through the study, but you know you, you can't do treatment and not start to pick up some ideas about what's going on with something, even before research results come out. So I thank all of you for being here today. And um, Kathy, could you tell us a bit about uh, how this research is being carried out, what you guys are doing? Well, what we're doing is we're running uh, what we call an observational study. So we're basically looking at and capturing data on our usual practice. So we're not doing anything unique for patients who enroll in the study that we would do with patients who are not enrolled in the study. So what we're trying to do, a big goal of the whole project is to sort of, you know, capture, document, analyze the practice of Chinese herbal medicine in this setting with patients, you know, with COVID type symptoms in the way it would normally be practiced. Um, so we're not doing what we call an interventional trial. The, the clinicians are doing everything that they would do just as they would in normal care, which is something that we're really excited about. Um, so we're not we're not sort of changing things or changing how patients are treated based on the fact that they're enrolled in the study. So it is it is really a reflection of, of, of actual practice. It sounds to me like you guys are studying Chinese medicine on Chinese medicine's terms. That was that was the goal. It makes my heart so happy to hear that. It was it was difficult to you put know, together. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? I mean, we had that conversation. If y'all haven't listened to it, it was about a month ago on how it was designed. But I'm curious from your side to hear about how it was put together. How did you guys come up with this idea? 
Well, the idea came from the school uh, when we when we started to open the clinic and start to to help patients in these situations. We also sort of had this sister idea of, well, why don't we capture it and do something with it and help? And the whole goal was basically to help others treat their patients. That was really singularly the entire goal of the idea was how do we figure out a mechanism to share our experience so that it might help others help their patients. And that that sort of escalated into what we're doing now, which is a a full study um, capturing the whole picture. It's amazing sometimes when an idea, it's the right time for it, things really can fall into place pretty quickly. Craig, can you tell us a bit about how this is being carried out at the school? So I will do that. And before I do that, however, I have to, Kathy is a little bit shy about taking credit where it's due. And it is in no small part, the, the, the fact that we're doing this is because Kathy came up with this idea. I mean, she and I talked about the possibility of us running a clinic and all of that. Like we, we, this is, this was very much collaborative at that stage. And then, but then out of that, she really came up with this idea of, oh, we could actually do this as a research study. And she is really the one who is the, the brains behind the study. It's not to say that she hasn't had help and that Lisa Conboy and Lisa Taylor Swanson and Lee Hollander Rubin, immensely, immensely helpful, but it really came out of Kathy's initiative. So I just want to give some credit there because I think that's important. In terms of the way that it's actually running, you know, we're fortunate, Michael, as you know, that we have some very, very experienced practitioners that we have access to in the Seattle area. I mean, in a sense, because this is telemedicine, it could, the practitioners could be anywhere, but for our purposes as a starting point, when Kathy and I were talking about, well, who are going to be the herbalists that are participating in this study at the beginning, we, we just thought about our immediate community and thought, well, we need to have people who have, say, 15 plus years of experience prescribing Chinese herbal medicine. One, because of the complexity of the cases that we would be seeing. And two, because if you don't have a lot of experience writing Chinese herbs in an in-person setting, and then you're asked to do this in a telemedicine setting, we thought that that would be overwhelming for a newer practitioner. So we reached out to Dan Bensky, who everyone knows, but who's also one of the founders of our school. And Dan and I had already, I think at that point, we may have already seen some patients together at that point. And so Dan and I talked that through a little bit and thought, well, Dan was interested in participating we have Shochun Ma, who is a practitioner originally from Chongqing, but who lives in Seattle now, um, who has been seeing patients for somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years. We have Daniel Altshuler, who is one of our faculty, who has, I'm not sure, maybe 20, 30-year range of experience. Myself, I have about 25 years of experience. Christina Jackson, who is another faculty member, who is about 15 to 20 years of experience. So we really pulled on the people in our community who have a significant long-term history of using herbs. And we do, we do the, the telehealth visits about a half hour, 45 minutes. Practitioner is there. The patient is there. They, the practitioner goes through whatever 
questions they have for the patient. We either get a picture of the tongue or take a look at it over Zoom, which is actually very challenging, I have to say. And, and we try to run the clinic as much as we can, like a quote unquote normal patient visit. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, other than pulse, there's a lot that you can do over a televisit. It's difficult because, you know, for myself, I, I rely heavily on an abdominal exam. Dan relies heavily on other palpatory things that he, that he does, the engaging vitality stuff. And so it's, it's been a real challenge for us, I would say, to do it in this medium. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I was first studying, it seemed like the herbal medicine piece of it was very much tongue pulse, symptom picture. Um, as I learned acupuncture, there was all this palpatory stuff that we were exposed to. You know, and I get it over time, everything kind of blends together. But in some ways, this is really an opportunity to do like herbal medicine just as quote, herbal medicine. Um, although maybe, especially for you guys, it's like you got one arm tied behind your back. Maybe two. So I'm curious to know about what kinds of symptoms you're seeing. What does this look like from our Chinese medicine point of view? I know that I spoke, oh man, I think it was in February with uh, Jean Zhao in uh, Chengdu, Chengdu, and he was talking about how they were really seeing a lot of very heavy, gooey, damp kinds of presentations, and and they were really looking at at getting rid of dampness. There was some cold, but damp was like the great big thing. I'm wondering, this is a different season; it's a different place. What kinds of things are you guys seeing in the clinic? Well, I think uh, is. Very, I think there's two aspects to what we've seen. You have to remember our patients are actually all over the place, uh, mostly in the United States, but maybe not, I don't know, maybe you guys know exactly 20, 30% of them are not in the Seattle area. We have people on the East Coast, people in the Midwest. And so uh, I think to me, I've learned a couple things. And I think it has to do uh, with the, the tension or the synthesis in Chinese medicine between Bian Zheng and Bian Bing, between differentiating the pattern and differentiating the disease. And uh, as uh, I'm sure you know, Michael, there's a lot of discussion in our profession by people who I would consider ideologues, that this must be either a Shanghai problem or it must be a Wenbing problem or something else like that. And our experience with uh, COVID-positive patients is very clear that that's a nonsensical way to approach this problem. I think maybe in one of our clinics, again, and one of the great things about our clinics, uh, I think there's two great things. One is usually there's two of us, and also the whole school is involved. There's like 20, 30 people listening so they can see as I like to say, how the sausage is made. And we had a, you know, one patient, oh yeah, I'm COVID positive. First thing that happened, I felt really chilled and I had a headache and the back of my, my upper back was really tight and I was achy all over. Uh, and then the next person, oh yeah, the first thing happened, I had a really bad sore throat and a high fever and I was sweating like mad. So, you know, the, we had people who basically 
COVID positive patients who read their symptoms out of the Shanghan Lun, read it out of the Wen Bingtao Bian, read it out of the Shuri Lun. So we have seen from a Bian Zheng perspective that it's, it's all over the map. Right? Whatever the different approaches that have been developed in East Asia to deal with infectious diseases, they can all apply. Now, again, these people are in different places. So it's possible in one place, it's, we don't have the numbers, but it's possible that in one place it's more Shanghai and another place is more Wenbing. But I don't think we have any evidence of that. So there's that aspect. That's, uh, I would say, crystal clear that for better or for worse, uh, you want to understand what's going on with these patients. You have to differentiate the pattern. Uh, it's not like we can just all take, oh, you have COVID here. You have early stage COVID. Take these herbs, which maybe would be nice, but that's not the way it is. On the other hand, there may be something that, again, it's hard for us to tell, but there is some sense that there is, for the majority of patients, definitely not for all patients, there is something that's a little different that ties things together, that there is this dampness or pathogenic water or some kind of fluid disorder uh, that, again, we would normally depend on our palpatory skills or the pulse to be clear, because oftentimes when they have pathological dampness, the tongue can be dry. The tongue doesn't really help you as much as we would like. Uh, so there's that aspect. Uh, there is the phenomena, which I think is very common, of people getting better and then kind of overdoing things and then getting worse again, sometimes for long periods of time. So this is whole spectrum. Again, not only spectrum in terms of uh, the uh, bian zheng, what, what kind of problems they can have, but in the severity, you know, we know lots of people have COVID that's like at worst a mild cold and many other people pass away, die from it. So there is that. We have a, we're trying to figure out what this is. We have a clue that maybe there's also some blood stasis involved. Again, very difficult for us to tell through telemedicine but I think in some of our patients, and Craig will correct me if I'm wrong, that when we started doing things about this little extra phlegm aspect or a little extra blood stasis aspect, that we were able to get better results than we had previously. So that's completely, not speculative, but that's a very tentative initial impression. So I think that's the, the main things that we've learned, that it's very clear that it's not one of the different approaches that we've learned. It can be all the different approaches that we've learned. And again, which is either the feature or the bug of East Asian medicine, you have to be flexible and you have to not uh, put your ego into whatever your diagnosis is, which has its good points and bad points. Uh, and But that there's also something else that's a little different. And part of it is, uh, you know, all the patients we see are mild to moderate. There's no, we've never seen anyone in the hospital. And I think only one or two of our patients have ended up hospitalized. Is that, is that right, Craig? So that's one segment that we've talked about. But I have a osteopathic buddy who's, uh, does osteopathy in the hospital in the Bronx for the last 30 years. And so he saw lots and lots of COVID patients who were hospitalized. And they had very unusual findings. And again, 
as background, he's been a hospital-based uh, person who does osteopathy for about 30 years. And there's many of the patients he's seen has stuff he's never seen before. And part of it is that their fluids and their connective tissue are really, really disturbed. Uh, I think maybe was, we could translate this into East Asian medicine terms, but normally when you look at different kinds of tissues in the body, they have the sense of being made out of water, which is what they are, right? And sometimes, again, we can use this in our other stuff, it's more like they're made out of salad oil or uh, cream or really, really bad would be molasses. That he said that, uh, again, this is about 80 patients who've been hospitalized. Their fluids felt like they were made out of tar, which is something that all of these patients had that he has never, ever felt before. So in people who have severe COVID disorders, there is something else going on. Again, that's not based on our personal experience because we don't see those patients. But I think even in the mild or moderate people, the stuff that's hanging on that is, uh, again, through telemedicine, not readily apparent to us, we have tentatively thought, oh, maybe there's some phlegm blood stasis aspects going in. And we have some very preliminary impressions that approaching it in that way from an herbal perspective that can be helpful. you agree, Craig? Definitely. And I just wanted to add one just little anecdotal thing. There was, there was one afternoon that we were seeing patients, Michael, and Dan and I were working together. And I think we saw four patients, all who had either positive COVID test or COVID symptoms. And each one of them like literally like the first one was a Shanghan Lun case. The second one was a Wenbing case. The third one was a damp phlegm toxin case. And the fourth one was some other like random thing that didn't really fit in any of those categories. And we just, you know, we were talking about it that day because it was so striking to us. And I think particularly in the context of these arguments that are going on in you know, in social media and whatnot about whether this is really Shanghan or really Wenbing or really whatever. It just, we were just laughing mm -hmm. about that, honestly, because this is just one afternoon of clinic where we saw at least four different kinds of presentations. And, and they weren't subtle. I mean, it really was like, oh, first person, I'm going to read to you. I'm going to tell you about myself by reading out line one of the Shanghan Lun. Right. right. The next first of all, I, I have the second chapter of the one thing Calbian. I think I'll tell you about myself. So, so, yeah. so is it this? Yes, it's it's all of this. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, there may be climactic, there may be genetic. Now, again, this is there are. It could be that if you were in one area, you might see one of those things. That's perfectly plausible, but that's not going to help us understand the disease better or how, in general. I guess you have to approach it like you approach almost everything else in our medicine. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention, from appetizer to dessert. 
This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, like you say, that is that the feature or the bug? It's the thing about Chinese medicine for me that makes it phenomenally interesting. I am just never, ever bored with it. The downside, you know, the opposite side of that is more than one lifetime, you know, to get, you know, any one perspective down, really. It's, it's a big job doing this and to be able to have enough familiarity and a certain amount of fluency with any of the different traditions so that you know, like, oh, here's a situation, this will be helpful. Here's a situation, actually, that previous patient I saw, that would be the wrong thing for them. And also, I think this is the brilliance of Kathy's uh, way of doing this particular study is we live in an industrial or post-industrial society. We think about our medical system. It's all based on a factory, factory model. And uh, this has been true for the last 120 years in, uh, in Chinese medical history. Our medicine is not an industrial type of medicine. You can't really put us in that box. And um, this is, again, for nation states, this is a disadvantage to the medicine because you require trained people who are flexible, et cetera, to do a decent job. You can't just put out, okay, everybody has this thing comes back, you give them that, they'll be fine, which is the way that uh, our society works and, and that whole healthcare system works. So I don't know, I mean, you know, Kathy always gives people um, offers they can't refuse. So she must have done the same thing with this study is how she got um, to, to approve a, even an observational study that's, for better or for worse, it's real. There's no doubt about it. Given the circumstance, it's as real as you can get. Uh, that's going to be, that's really exciting and interesting. But I think it shows that is such a problem because we don't really practice an industrial form of medicine. Well, one of the things I appreciate about what you're doing with this and the way the study is being conducted is that you're studying Chinese medicine on Chinese medicine's terms. And you're actually having people come in that, that this study can capture that information. If you were just doing a protocolized thing, which is, of course, very popular and industrial, you'd miss so much stuff. It's really a chance for us to see what the medicine does when it's being practiced as the medicine that it is. Dan, I'm very appreciative of your comments about your colleague in the hospitals in the Bronx, an old school osteopath who knows how to use their hands to understand things. And he says there's something going on with fluids. For me, I, I take that as, as a, like a cross-confirmation with what I'm hearing and seeing from the Chinese medicine world, which says something here with fluids. 
Right. Even the m- mainstream biomedical world sums here with fluids, right? This is uh, no matter how, that's the disease. That's what's going on. The, the, regardless of your perspective, it's clear. It, it's clear if you know how to look at it, right? Again, if, if you're looking, oh, we've got this, uh, this deadly pathogen and, uh, you know, it's a pneumonia, right? Or it's a flu-like thing. It, it, it can be a red herring to think that way. I mean, the beauty of Chinese medicine, it gives us these other perspectives to look at it through. Well, I think, though, the issues they've been having with ventilation and ventilators uh, with these patients, mm. that's also a recognition. There's some fluid disorder going on. And the way that we normally would you know that those you know, very skilled and very caring people, what they normally do isn't working. Uh, and that's uh, in- more upsetting to them than we can imagine. It's incredibly upsetting. But it's the same thing. Oh, there's some kind of fluid aspect that's going on. And, uh, you know, they don't know what to do about it. Uh, they're, they're working on it. But I think anybody who has uh, open mind about what they're doing sees that there's this COVID, uh, whatever, SARS-CoV-2 virus messes with people's fluids. So I think whether it's from osteopathic perspective, biomedical perspective, uh, East Asian medical perspective, if you actually see the patients, even if you see them through a screen, it's yeah. it's clear. You were talking about there might be issues with the blood as well. I'm curious to know what you guys are seeing with that. Again, this is one of those things that's really difficult for us. I think this is, uh, I would say, actually, I'll let Craig finish it, but this is really clear where we have two hands tied behind our back because it's almost more that Eileen Guy-Tor thing about, well, Things don't respond the way you think they should, even though you see no signs of blood stasis, you approach it like blood stasis. It won't show up in the tongue very often. It, but we can't feel, we can't feel the pulse or can't feel their fluids. Uh, but I think it's just a, why is this nagging? Why do they have this kind of, you know, rebound issue? And so again, very tentatively, when we started adding those kinds of herbs, we seem to get slightly better results. You can probably elaborate, Craig. Well, I think one of the things that's been so frustrating to us and to patients is we've had, especially early on, we had a few patients who seemed like they were doing great. And then they, you know, I was feeling really good and I went out for a long walk. Not even, you know, like I went out and ran or something, just I went for a longer than normal walk and the next day I was wiped out again. My fever went back up and I started to feel poorly again. And so the recovery process seems so maddeningly difficult. And I think part of the way that we've begun to understand that is through these, through these two kind of lenses, intersecting lenses, one being the phlegm, damp, fluid congestion side and the other being the blood stasis side. And I think in, in some cases, we have made the decision to, to treat one or both of those things on just the slimmest little sliver of, oh, we saw a little bit of you know sublingual vein distension or something, or there's just a little bit of darkness on the tongue, and we just sort of immediately go, okay, we're going to treat blood stasis at least a little bit in this patient. And while that does seem helpful, and I think it's leading us in the right direction, 
I would still say that it's been continues to be um, a work in progress because it's not like I mean I don't I, we are not at the point where we're routinely just oh patient comes in they're super sick with COVID symptoms oh and we get them better like that it's that's not the case and I mean the one the one thing just a little anecdote that I mm-hmm. wanted to throw out about the issues with ventilators. We did have a patient early on that we worked with who ended up on a ventilator briefly. And one of the, I don't know, working hypotheses, at least for me, and I think for Kathy, because we talked about this a bit, is that part of the reason why he went on the ventilator and came back off again relatively quickly and is doing, knock wood, relatively fine now, is that he got a bunch of treatment before he needed to be hospitalized. And so his internal environment was different than it would have been otherwise going into that. So it's still, there's so many, it, it, it often seems to me as though I am looking at a, a landscape painting, but most of it's covered still. And there are certain areas you know, a corner here and a tree there and a little rock over here. And I can kind of see those pieces, but the whole landscape, I still don't feel like I'm seeing. It seems like that's the case throughout the world with people approaching this thing. The, the level of uncertainty, of just what the heck is this thing? It, it just seems to go through so many streams. And now we're getting, uh, our clinic has been, you know, expanding it, uh, its patient-based treating just people who are coming in for the sequela, patients we didn't see during the illness who are reaching out to be seen for what is being described here. Mm-hmm. What other kinds of sequela are you seeing? I mean, often when I think of sequela, you know, I, I go to the, my Shanghai Lin thinking and I go, well, let's let's check for some chaihu patterns and see, you know, there's some back and forth. Do we need to adjust the qi mechanism a bit? What's What kind of things are you seeing? Again, and I'll, I'll start and maybe someone else can jump in. We just saw a patient yesterday, last night, who has been sick for about a month and really up and down. He's not, he does not appear at this stage to be in any imminent danger, but he still is having, you know, top half of his body is all hot and the lower half of his body is all cold. He's night sweating. He is incredibly fatigued. He breaks a sweat, you know, with even just a tiny bit of exertion. His appetite is all out of whack. His GI system is still not right. Those are just, those are some examples of things that we've, we've seen. I mean, he, he happens to have a a bunch of them, but we've seen each of those kinds of things in multiple different patients. Yeah. Cause we've seen quite a few patients who developed the, they're a little bit of a, a, smaller or more minor version of their original presentation, right? They come in and they, they, like, they go for that long walk and they get the sore throat back that they had in the beginning. And, you mm-hmm. know. Or if they were the cold type, the back of their neck, and then they got the body aches, that kind of thing comes back. On the more serious side, uh, I mean, in, ter- in terms of the severity of symptoms, we have also seen a few patients who have had relatively significant uh, heart issues, that have that appear to be linked to COVID infection. Now, did they have these heart issues prior to being infected? No, no. And what kind of heart issues are you seeing? Well, I guess on the 
and please, Dan or Kathy, jump in. I think on the mild side, palpitations and some irregularity in heartbeat. On the more severe side, uh, significant problems with heart rhythm and rate, both, and chest pain, That whole the whole gamut. I mean, this sounds like that heat falling into the pericardium kind of presentation. Yeah, it seems that this couple people I'm thinking of, it's more like, again, phlegm and blood stasis affecting the diaphragm. And the mm. diaphragm issue seems to be, uh, and then you know, from a biomedical perspective, sometimes those people have electrical issues in the heart, in the you know, in the anatomical heart. But it's, um, it's again, it's not clear. It's a, a morpho, it's just kind of an idea. Uh, not, I mean, again, and then not only it's not clear for us, uh, some of these people go see very, very uh, skillful cardiologists. And the cardiologists are kind of baffled, like, well, we haven't seen this before. We're not sure what this is. So it's a, the mystery is, uh, for, again, I think for worse, cuts across <laughs> all the different kinds of medicine. Are there any kind of like constitutional aspects that you see with people? Certain people are going to present in a certain way, um, or is it just all over the map? I don't think we have a basis for that to make it have an opinion one way or the other. We've seen people all different body sizes, different ethnic backgrounds, and the number we just don't have the numbers. I think to for me anyway to make any. And again, it's certainly uh, the person's pre-existing health status appears to have no relationship to whether they have this kind of long tail problem or not. So we certainly have people with who are very fit and quite healthy who get knocked out. And then, you know, when the acute phase is over, they still have problems for weeks afterwards. So Mm -hmm. uh, who are not obese or don't have diabetes, don't have those pre-existing conditions. So we've seen that. Um, but I don't, so I don't, I don't think we have anything positive to say in that, oh, this kind of person is at, more at risk than that kind of person. Right, Kathy? So, yeah, we don't seem to think from our, you know, limited experience, that's uh, unclear. Again, these are all, almost all non-hospitalized COVID people, but most of them, I would say, you know, much worse than a cold. So there would be they probably have mild, moderate, and severe. These are maybe you know, in between mild and moderate, most of our patients. I often tend to think that there's a pattern to things, that, that things kind of run in a way that I expect them to. And, and, and then I'm used to, oh, this kind of person, they get, they get this kind of a problem, and then it's going to go like this or it's going to go like that. I mean, uh, I think our medicine is helpful in making prognoses based on what we're seeing. It sounds like with this thing that kind of goes out the window. Well, at least interacting with people with telemedicine, it goes out the window. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It does go. Yeah. We have no idea. Uh, And so certainly I think I would suggest for everybody who sees these patients, you need to keep in contact with them. You would not say, Oh, take these and, uh, I'll talk to you in like three weeks. Like, you know, 
We've when people have even sometimes if they've missed an appointment because they felt they were doing better, that has been a bad thing for them. So I think uh, I think one thing, and it, again, you know me, Mike. Most people don't know. I don't like to see people very often, but I think for these patients, it's important to at least you know even if they're not acutely ill, uh, for a few weeks after they've been sick, I think it'd be important to at least check in with them at least once a week. You you agree, mm-hmm. Craig and Kathy? Yeah. I I was wondering, Kathy, could you, can you maybe talk a little bit about the setup of the, because we kind of addressed this in terms of the study design. Well, in anticipation of that, we set up the study that it is built in that, well, actually, I mean, this is again for any patient who has these symptoms that they get seen. And then once they start the herbal the herbal formula, we check in with them 24 hours later, and then again, 48 hours later. And then we decide at that point what the next step is. And we did that really early on, not really knowing if that was a really good plan that would be reflective of what we would normally do. And I think in every single case, it would have been what we would do anyway. So it it has worked very, very well. And it seems to have been a good plan. We have found that in 24, particularly maybe the 48 hour mark, things change and sometimes patients need to be seen a lot sooner than you might normal normally do in normal practice. That's been an important component. Cordyceps is all the rage right now. It's included in adaptogenic formulas, workout supplements, and is one of the top superfoods. For centuries, the Chinese have used this mushroom to strengthen the lungs, kidneys, and improve vitality. Given the high price tag of wild cordyceps sinensis, what is often sold is a pure mycelium form called CS4. So which cordyceps does real mushrooms use? Hi, I'm Sky Chilton, and I'd like you to meet Cordyceps militaris. Militaris has similar benefits to the wild sinensis and is even richer in the powerful antioxidant cordycepin. What's more, it's sustainable and organically cultivated. If you'd like to provide a potent cordyceps for your patients, Text Real Mushrooms, all one word, to 33777. Real Mushrooms, pure, simple, and effective. Well, it seems like with something like COVID, you would certainly want to stay on top of it. And I remember from my schooling, we were always told that for external conditions like this, for some pathogen that comes in from the outside, it can change very quickly and you need to keep on top of it. Sometimes it moves slowly, but sometimes it moves quickly, like so quickly that if you think a patient needs it, they should take their herbs now at your clinic because by the time they get home, they might be in a different place. Just for my own, because I engage a lot in those follow-up calls, I would say I can't offhand think of a patient that didn't have a significant change in some direction within 24 to 48 hours of starting the herbal formula. I want to talk about something positive. I know that will make everybody <laughs> flip over. But I'm glad I was sitting down. Good. Yeah. You know, uh, this idea that uh, people do East Asian medicine should be prepared for some kind of pandemic has been really common for you know, a few decades. And I'm sure probably true for Craig. Certainly one reason I got into teaching the Shanghai Lun in the 90s 
uh, is that we should get ready, uh, whether for this kind of thing or maybe the end of the antibiotic era. Uh, and we've, I think, failed fairly miserably in being prepared, to be honest. Uh, and one of the reasons is, I think, up until now, uh, it would not be uncommon for someone to come to see us and then call us and say, oh, uh, I can't come in today because I have a f- the flu. And, you know, I would say for most people, certainly for myself, again, right or wrong, I thought, well, the hassle of them coming to my office, uh, you know, sick with the flu is probably not worth their while. And so uh, while, you know, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, I had a lot of experience treating acute infectious disease. I haven't for the last 30 years. Uh, And I realized, well, with this telemedicine thing, after, you know, we can say, okay, well, you don't, don't come in. Uh, let's, you know, go on some kind of platform and tell me what's going on. And we look at your tongue and I'll send you some herbs and you can start taking the herbs, you know, either mail them to you or have someone pick them up. That this is a very uh, viable way to both help our patients because, you know, now COVID is very problematic, but, you know, common colds, most kinds of flu we all know herbal medicine can work incredibly quickly. Uh, and so now I think we have learned that, oh, yeah, let's do that. Next next time they don't, can't, it's too much trouble to come to your office. Both uh, the patients should be able to get quite significant relief, at the very least get better much more quickly. And then also we get experience in treating people. And so I think that is a silver lining to me of this telemedicine in this pandemic that we now have a pretty tried and true mechanism for seeing people with acute uh, infectious diseases with herbs uh, through at a distance. And I think uh, over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, that will change the way that we practice in, in this country and in the West in general to the benefit of, of our patients and also to our profession. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. The thing about people not coming in when they're sick with a cold or a flu I know that I've had lots of people not come in to see me as well, 
when they're coming down with something because they're used to going to their conventional medicine practitioners who say, if you're sick, don't come in. And so often they'll go, well, you know, I'm sick, I, I shouldn't come in. And so we don't get as much of a chance to actually practice with treating infectious disease. We're starting to get it now. Any other thoughts that you guys have on how we can begin to take that experience and, and really learn from it? I mean, I know we've got the Wen Bing and the Shang Han Lun, and you know, we've got there's plenty of books and there's plenty of points of view, as we've already discussed. Being able to be somewhat conversant with all them would be useful, at least with COVID. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. No, it's not. It's not that complicated. Right? I mean, you know, there's good books in English on all of them. You know, again, if you're not an ideologue, then it's not that, you know, again, we just talked about the person who had, oh, I had, you know, very uh, bad chills and my I had neck pain and I was sh shivering and I couldn't sweat versus, though, I have a sore throat and, you know, I'm sweating a lot and I have a fever and I'm just a little, you know, averse to drafts. I mean, again, those are maybe more not typical, but they occur. It's, it's I mean, there's lots of nuance, but the basic idea, it's not like thousands of hours of training to learn this stuff. It's probably tens of hours. And, you know, if you're a medical professional, it's not, again, I don't want to say it's, I, I, I want to be clear. It's not like, oh, it's really easy to do. But to get the basic foundations uh, to be, you know, vaguely competent, it's not that hard. It's not, it's not esoteric. You don't have to retreat to a mountainside or meditate for 10 hours a day. You just have to be open and read some things and see the patients, right? I mean, that's not, that's not as we say, it's, uh, it's not Taoist rocket science. It's just, <laughs> it's just, you know. So, so let me, I have a couple of thoughts on this. The, the first is on our website, so shameless self-promotion, S-I-E-A-M dot E-D-U, you will, starting relatively soon, you will be able to see some content about what it is that we're learning from the study. So probably early on, it will be, and Kathy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think probably early on, it will be some cases, <clears throat> little case reports about a few of the patients who we have been seeing and some of the results of what, like what they were given and how they fared. So, so if you're interested in, in starting, like one of the really, I think very elegant and, and thoughtful aspects of this study design was that this is not like Kathy said to me very early on, this is not the kind of study where, Oh, three years from now we'll publish a paper about it. This was designed from the very beginning to be information sharing all along through the study. This is going to be open access. It's going to be free for everyone to look at and read. I mean, there will hopefully be papers that come out three years from now. But, but right now, we're just trying to get information out into the community about treating these patients. So that will be coming soon. 
ish. The other thing is, you know, I do, I want to both second what Dan said and also recognize that, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, we've been practicing for a long time and I think for, for Dan and myself and definitely for Kathy, like we're not wedded to one particular system and we're, we're interested in serving our patients as effectively as we can, regardless of what tradition the formula comes from that we use to treat them. That, that distinction has never been something that any of us were interested in. So if we get great results with a warm disease school formula, then that's great because the patient gets better and that's all we care about. So I do concur that there, there are excellent textbooks in all of these areas you know, if in your school training, you didn't get great exposure to warm disease theory or Shanghan Lun, pick up a book. Absolutely. There are great English language materials out there now in all of these domains. And they're more or less approachable. But I think starting with, with looking at that material and then reaching out to people maybe in your own community or reach out to us um, at the school. And we can we can also be a resource for people who are trying to learn more about these these materials, because I do think that having a thoughtful, flexible approach that draws on the whole range of treatment strategies that are part of of this amazing tradition that we're all a part of uh, makes all the difference to our patients in terms of our ability to be effective. Dan, I really appreciate your sediment on, well, there's books out there and it's, it's not Dallas rocket surgery. It's, it's a slice of our medicine. It's not the entirety of our medicine. It's a slice of it. So I've learned a little bit of Chinese over the years. It's not that good, but it's doable. And the reason that it's doable is because to do Medical Chinese is a way smaller lift than doing all of Chinese. Learning medical Chinese, it's, it's totally in anyone's wheelhouse if they want to do it because the language and the vocabulary is limited. The grammar patterns are limited. It's one small piece of the larger language. And, and if, if I'm hearing you correctly, that if you want to learn to treat infectious disease, it's a piece of the medicine and it's graspable because, because we already have all kinds of other pieces of the medicine. So it's a matter of focusing in on this particular part. And right now we've got all kinds of opportunity for that. Right. And again, I want to be clear. I mean, learning it is definitely doable. Doing it really well, like anything, takes practice and everything. You know, like, you know, we have a thing. If you have someone comes in with a cold and you, get the herbs right, the next day they should not have a cold. If you give them six days of herbs and after six days they're better, well, that probably wasn't the most optimal treatment for them. And th- no, that happened. It happens to me. So I don't want to make it seem, oh, yeah, once you learn it, it's just like that. But to learn the basics, to be able to engage with these patients in a way that should be helpful to them is no, it's not, you know, it's not outside the can of, what you should know if you're doing Chinese herbal medicine. And again, uh, you know, we've, I'm sure you've, you, I think you've had people on about this up until whatever the 1930s, maybe 1940s, 
if you were a Chinese herbalist and you couldn't treat acute infectious diseases, you you were bankrupt. You didn't have a practice, right? Uh, so um, it's not. And again, that's like the 20th century. That's not like the Han Dynasty. So, uh, and again, most of those people, if you read what they did in the early 20th century, they they exactly what we're talking about. Some of them did more Shanghan, but they didn't only do Shanghan. They because because if they didn't get their patients well quickly, they couldn't hide behind the fact like, well, I, I do Shanghan. What do you expect? We're like, oh, but you didn't help me. Like, screw you. Uh, so, um, you know, it's just part of the medicine. Then. You know, with the success of antibiotics and all that stuff, it's become less important. And again, as we mentioned before, uh, with the industrialization of society, mm-hmm. you know, you can't know you, ERs don't work with Chinese medicine. You can't have you know the pots of uh, sinitang or something you know boiling in the background. You know, you don't have stat. This 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 not the way the medicine works. They've done some things for this and. In mainland China, but I was in Chongqing in '85 when I met Malakshir, and they had a nationwide meeting about Chinese medicine and emergency medicine. What what part should Chinese medicine play in emergency departments? It was in Chongqing at the same time. I had a chance to talk to some of the people, and their basic thing was well. It works really well for these conditions, but not in you know what's the logistics of setting up this it's not industrial you can't like you can't just you know oh we're just gonna like pull what we want we have to make a differentiation you have to cook up the herbs and in the meantime by the time the herbs are ready biomedicine could have treated the person already right so um there may have been other things going on but there was like a meeting what is going to happen with chinese medicine in emergencies and the answer was can't use it but not because it didn't work, but because it didn't it didn't work in a way that fit to the best way that to run the emergency room. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And so it brings up for me this question, which is: We've been seeing this as an acute illness. There's a lot of talk about vaccines. Okay, good luck with that. It seems to me, and I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a virologist. But it seems to me that human beings tend to evolve, we co-evolve with things. So, you know, is COVID going away? Maybe it's something we learn to live with and work with. It becomes like a chronic thing that kind of comes around from time to time. Is there a mass-produced factory-type solution to that? Maybe. But if there's not, then it seems to me the kind of stuff that Chinese medicine has to offer in terms of being able to work with each person as an individual, as they are in any particular moment, if you've got a practitioner who's linghua enough to be able to go, this is a Shanghan thing. I'm going to treat this as Shanghan right now, or oh, that's Win Bing. I'm going to I'm going to take it on like that. That as this thing goes on, and I suspect it will go on, I suspect that there's ways that our medicine can be used to be very very helpful to people, because. If there's not an industrial solution, we might need this more tailor-made solution. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, simple thought is, you know, everybody's been talking about the so-called Spanish flu. Uh, Well, that's the basis of the seasonal influenza, right? So certain level, 
it's, you know, don't have pandemics to the degree that we had in 1916 to 1919, whenever that was, uh, but still here, flu still here. And again, this is one of, our, I think, our failings uh, in the West is that we haven't really We have we have not stepped up the way we should have, and uh, now we have we have no more excuse. So I'm I'm thinking about the various sort of specialities that we have as Chinese medicine practitioners. There's a fertility group and musculoskeletal, and maybe we're gonna some people are gonna get really good at treating infectious disease. Maybe this is actually an opportunity to advance what we do and to advance our skills. That'd be great. That's Craig, actually. Craig is the in the he's the Chen Feng. He's the the shock troops of the uh, infectious disease. Waigan Chen Feng. Waigan. Yeah, I think I think it must be that Dan has. We've been on talking on this podcast. He's lost his marbles here. <laughs> no, but I think it's a, it's difficult because for the vast majority of infectious diseases. I would say, you know, uh, probably biomedicine is easier and effective. And so if you want to specialize in that from a East Asian medical perspective, that's going to be a little bit harder. But I think that um, hopefully as a result of COVID and our response to it, that we will get recognize ourselves. That's not, I don't think it's really a question of the, patients recognize it, but we recognize ourselves mm. that this is something that we have to offer and we need to offer versus something that we can like, you know, well, that's too much trouble for me or. Goes to your functional medicine doctor. Yeah. So uh, I think this is, again, for me personally, uh, it's a big wake up call that, oh yeah, I've uh, not been doing my job the last decade or two. Um, which is not, not a very good feeling, but it's very clear. And so we need to step up again, more for our medicine and our patients. But I think if we recognize, oh yeah, I can do this, this, this stuff is something that we're normally quite helpful for, then the patients will follow. Uh, we think, oh, I, that's all, you know, that why got that externally pathogenic stuff. I, that's not for me or it's too difficult or whatever then that's the problem. It's not the, the patients aren't the problem. I would just say also in, in, to amplify Dan's comments, I know when, when we, I mean, one of the fortunate things I think that, that we, we have had is from the very beginning of these, of this group of patients, Dan and I have worked together on seeing a lot of the patients that we've seen. And I remember early on, we were talking about, having real questions about whether we were going to be able to do this over a telehealth platform. I mean, I think both of us were, I mean, we were kind of looking at each other like, really, are we going to actually try and do this just based on the patient's symptom report and looking at the tongue? 
And half the time, it's like really hard to get a good read on the tongue over Zoom. And do we need them to take a picture of it? And how's that going to work? And the bottom line is, I think at this point that we, and Dan, correct me if you feel differently, but I, I think we both feel like we have been very helpful to the majority of the people that we've seen. And it's not that we've been able to, you know, make stuff go away in 24 hours or something. I'm not trying to oversell that. But I just, I think I, I just want to, I guess, in the sense of coming from a positive perspective, I think that we have been positive, pleasantly surprised by how, how well we've been able to do across these platforms in ways that were not what necessarily what we expected. And so I think that's quite hopeful from that point of view. Yeah, that's absolutely. And again, I think uh, Craig and Kathy have talked to me about this previously, that, you know, particularly personally, I ended up asking a lot more questions and talking to the people a lot more than I would otherwise. And we've even had some, I would say, some successes in non-acute infections doing telemedicine with herbs that have just made me laugh. I mean, literally laugh out loud, like we, we helped that person <laughs> like <laughs> through, through zoom, <laughs> you know, like someone with these bad muscles, like, you know, like, you know, disabling migraines 24 seven, they can't sleep. They're all set up. They're like, really? <laughs> like they're better. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, you can't yeah. laugh while you're on the zoom with the patient, but after they hang out, like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> this stuff, <laughs> this stuff is much more powerful than we think. Um, and, we, and we think it's pretty powerful <laughs> to begin with. So, so it's been a, yeah. that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. You have a funny idea of fun there, Dan Bensky, but uh, uh, I uh, tend to concur. You're not the first person to tell me that. All right. Any uh, final thoughts that you guys would like to share before we wind this down? Really, huh? I don't think so. Kathy? No. Kathy. Kathy. Well, I mean, I guess the the thing I would say about the study as you know, as the final thing I would say is that I there has been a an outgrowth of this study that I didn't really anticipate that has probably been one of the most exciting things for me, which is when you come together and you do something like this with the community the level of engagement across our entire community, even nationally, I mean, people who have reached out, we're collaborating with different organizations and individuals. And I mean, I just feel like this is something very, very positive for the, for the herbal medicine community in ways that have yet to be told, but already have shown, I think relationships that are happening now will grow into something that we'll see five years from now, 10 years from now, something crop out of this project um, in a way that I, I am sure of and is very, very exciting for me. Keeps me going on it. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me today, all of you. Thank you for the work that you're doing there. All right. So thanks, you guys. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. 
Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.